Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Shu Cao a host for the New Books Network. Today, I have the honor of speaking with President Anna Marie Kause and Dean James Anthony about their newest book, The College President Handbook, a sustainable and practical guide for emerging leaders. So let's just get started. Why did you decide to write this book? Could you share about the genesis story of the book? Yeah, I'd be happy to take this. So several of us have been thinking about presidential leadership for many, many years. And as higher education has become increasingly more and more complex globally, we realized that there was really a need to try and help the next generation of leaders, presidential leaders, to think about how they might craft their career in preparation for a possible presidency or even how current presidents might learn from already successful presidents around a variety of topics. Now, President Kause and I have worked together on other projects before. Most recently, a few years ago, we did a book on leadership challenges in higher education, which in some ways shares a similar structure to the present book that we're talking about, the College President Handbook. And President Kause and I thought it would be really quite useful to zero in quite specifically on the presidential role. Um, There's a lot of books out there. I know Susan Resnick-Pierce has a fantastic book on becoming a president as well. So certainly there's no shortage of other authors and editors who've uh, addressed this topic. But we really, really wanted to try and do something different from what everybody else had done, which was to ask a series of presidents, really more than two dozen presidents, who we know have been successful on a variety of fronts, to, in their own words, provide very direct, concrete advice to our readers. And so that's pretty much the genesis story of the book, and we're thrilled with the way it's turned out. Yeah, if, if I could just add, to, as Jim and I talked together with Lynn and Tara, that we really felt that the timing was right, because Uh, We're beginning to see the baby boomers retiring and a whole new group of of presidents coming on. And that one of the real marks of the new presidency, so to speak, is we're seeing a lot more diversity. We're seeing more women becoming presidents, more people of color becoming presidents, people that are coming from different parts. We're seeing more people that are coming from outside the academy that are becoming presidents. And so that was a big part of why we really wanted to reflect the full spectrum of voices. This is not a book that comes from any one person's voice, but it comes from people that are leading community colleges, from people that are leading private universities, from leaders that are that are leading small and big universities. And one of the things about these administrative leadership positions, especially with a presidency, is that in many ways you get to shape the role. It's not like it's this you know, these are the rules and you walk into them, but you get to shape the roles. And so we really wanted to have that broad diversity of voices represented so that people got a sense of, in fact, I can be a president and I can shape the presidency around me as much as the presidency is going to shape me. Can you share what are some of the distinctive skills or characteristics that are needed to lead a higher education institution? I'm happy to take that. I mean, one skill that sometimes doesn't get mentioned, 
but that I think is really important is, you know, self-reflection. This is, you know, no one enters a, a presidency knowing everything about it. And so the ability to take time to reflect on how things are going, to grow in the job, I think is incredibly important. Obviously, you know, we also need someone that's very analytic. One of the things that I think, you know, we want to see in our presidencies, whether we're talking about universities or others, is, you know, people that are making database decisions. So the ability to really be analytic and to be strategic about about things is very important. I'd say another really important skill, probably now that I think about it, probably the most important skill is the ability to bring people on board and build a strong team. You know, one thing that I always tell people is if you think about the breadth of some of our institutions, the University of Washington, we have three hospitals, we have clinics all over the university, we have a college of the environment, we have, you know, it's, it's a, you know, we have an arts department, we have a theater, there is no person who knows how to run all those things. So it really is important to be able to build a team where you have that expertise and where those people are willing to speak out. I often say, because it's the truth, if on any specific topic, I'm the smartest one at the table, I have picked the wrong group. So I think we need to add humility to the list of characteristics. Absolutely. Dean Anthony, do you have anything that you would like to add in particular in regards to how some of these skills may be shared with heads of a corporation? For oh, well, first of all, I, I as always agree with my colleague, President Kowsi, in every dimension. She's so insightful. I think your question is an excellent one. I travel the globe and speak to leaders in a variety of sectors, principally in the higher education sector, but from time to time get invited to speak to CEOs and other leaders in the private sector. And I'm always struck by, you know, it doesn't matter what organization I might be meeting a person from, organizations are complex, large, small, public, private, for-profit, not-for-profit. They're all very, very complex. And though we make a lot of the differences between these various kinds of organizations, and certainly there are differences, I sometimes find that the similarities among these organizations are quite profound. You know, as President Kausay said, all organizations, whether they be corporate or otherwise, they need leaders who are good listeners. They need to be people who can listen to what people are actually saying to them, but they also have to have a knack for listening to what is getting unsaid, shall we say, the things that people don't speak about quite readily. They need to be people who encourage those around them, encourage them to be honest with themselves, honest with the organization, and they need to be encouraging people to take calculated risks when appropriate. You know, all leaders, uh, whether they are in higher ed or uh, the private sector, they need to be incredibly adaptive. If anything has uh, been learned by leaders in this pandemic period, is that plans that you might have in place are, are certain to fail from time to time. So you better be flexible while being principled. So adaptation is, is a key. As Dr. Kaus said, you know, you are chief talent developer. So leaders in the private sector, leaders in the higher ed sector, 
I like to say, you know, the literature on transformational leadership tells us that the number one job of a leader is to transform the people around them into leaders. And so it doesn't matter what sector we are, you know, you are the people developer in chief for your organization. I think as Dr. Kaus said, uh, database decision-making is just plain smart. So being able to evaluate and assess Finally, I'd say probably the biggest thing that uh, all leaders in any kind of organization really need to be able to do is what psychologists might call cognitive reframing strategies. So, you know, you're going to fail from time to time, especially if you're running a leading edge organization. So you can't be afraid of failure and you have to know how to reframe those setbacks and failures in ways that don't sink the organization or, or the people around you. So really knowing how to do that, but most importantly, knowing how to teach your people how to reframe setbacks and failures and find you know, the silver lining. What did you learn and, and how can you go from there? So, so those are my thoughts on your excellent question. Yeah, one thing that I read as Jim was talking really occurred to me is that, you know, we often you hear people saying that, you know, university presidents have, you know, should be learning more from corporate CEOs. And of course, there are things that we can learn from them. But I think it also, as things also go in, in the other direction as well, I think one of the, one of the traditionally big differences between a, a, a corporate CEO, I'm talking about a private company, and a university president is that a private company, that your goals and who you answer to is very direct. You answer to your shareholders, and your goal is to maximize profits for those shareholders. Whereas a university president, you have a multitude of state of stakeholders. If you're at a public university, the state government, and therefore the people of the state, you have your students, you have your faculty, you have your staff, and often you have several unions that are involved. So you have a lot of different stakeholders. But what's interesting is some of the conversations that we are seeing evolve at places like the World Economic Forum, et cetera, is that, you know, we need to be maybe tweaking or changing from a shareholder capitalism to a more of a stakeholder capitalism, and that it's more important for corporate CEOs to also be thinking about the public good. And we're seeing that as more corporations are being more environmentally conscious and are thinking about their products and how it affects the are weighing in on issues around gender equity, et cetera. So I think that we're beginning to see, in fact, that there's things that corporate CEOs can learn from university presidents in terms of the need to pay attention to multiple stakeholders and having, in fact, multiple goals. This book is an invitation for those, here I quote, brave enough to be a college president now to be the light, end quote. What are some of the temptations, pitfalls, or negative aspects of college presidential leadership that one needs to take note of and, if possible, to avoid? Let me just say this. I think picking up on, on President Kelsey's earlier comments, I think you need to get into this business for the right reasons. And, you know, hubris is not a good quality for any kind of leader, let alone, in my opinion, a college leader, understanding that nothing good gets done uh, in, in solitary. So really to be able to work with others is going to be absolutely key. I, I'd like to say your role is to truly elevate others uh, around you. 
I think some of the pitfalls of some college presidents that I've seen over the years perhaps might be that they create a cult of personality where running the institution is truly about, shall we say, elevating themselves or positioning themselves as the principal symbol of the institution. I think an individual can get into some trouble if they find themselves cultivating that kind of climate. So that would be my most obvious pitfall. I'll turn it over to Tanamati. I absolutely, not surprisingly, agree with what you have to say. This is not a position that you do for fame and glory, that it really has to be very important that the institution come first. And yes, you are the face of the institution, and so you matter, and you get a lot of reflected glory. That can be enjoyable, um, and I think that people should enjoy that. But it is very important that this not be about you and about building yourself up because that is not good for the institution as a whole. And I think that sometimes, you know, we do see some folks with a lack of humility can end up being a a problem. I think that the other thing that is part of why we really wanted people to do some short essays is that I think that, you know, a lot of times, and and I mentioned this about myself, I mean, I you know, you would have thought that I was probably just about the most prepared person to be president of at least at my university as anybody else, because I'd been there for 30 plus years. I'd been dean there. I'd been in the provost office. I'd been provost. I'd done all these positions. And yet I really didn't fully understand the weight of the responsibilities that are on your shoulder. And I think that sometimes you have people because, you know, I mean, it is a huge institution and on any given day, not everything is under your control. I think we've seen some presidents where they've had huge pitfalls because they have tended to deflect their responsibility. In other words, that happened, it was their fault. I didn't know, I couldn't know, et cetera, rather than at the end of the day, I do think, and you have to be prepared for that as you come in, that you do have to take responsibility for what you knew and sometimes for what you don't know. And so how do you set it up so that problems do percolate up to you when it's necessary? In your narrative essay, it really struck core with me when you said, I have never felt warier or more energized. Two contradictory feelings. And you also wrote about the importance here, a quote again, of setting the right tone of realism. I have questions that are twofold. One, what are the upper bounds of college president responsibilities? And second, how does one hold the ideals of a university while still remaining grounded in reality. The weary and energized, I mean, I do think that there is both that the high, you know, as I say, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. But uh, the wonderful thing is that, you know, at most times the highs outweigh the lows. I think there are no upper bounds of responsibility. I really, you know, the buck really does stop here. And that at the end of the day, You are responsible for things, even things that, quite frankly, everyone would agree you didn't know about and you couldn't have known about. At the end of the day, they did happen on your watch. And so you are responsible. I do think that, by and large, people are reasonable, you know, whether you're talking about your students or your faculty, you know, as a whole. There may be a few unreasonable people, but by and large, they're reasonable. 
and the degree to which they will hold you personally responsible, talking about a vote of no confidence or whatever, will vary depending on what's going on. Like I say, if there's something that happened very far removed from you, a mistake that happened on a construction project, for example, you will still have the responsibility for fixing it. And if you hired badly, it will go to you much more directly, but people will generally give you some leeway. But if it's something that happened in an office that was close to you, and that even if you didn't know my God, how could you not have known? Or even worse, if you knew but ignored, then it falls on you much more directly and people have every reason to consider you responsible. You know, at the end of the day, you are responsible for everything. But again, I think that in many cases, people will, again, if something is far away enough from you, they won't blame you directly, although they will still consider you responsible for fixing it. You know, and I think that where realism comes into play is that I think that one of the things that is absolutely wonderful and energizing and fabulous of being part of a university is at any given time, there's a thousand ideas and a thousand projects and, you know, multiple things that that we all want to do with the wonderful talent that we have around us. But, you know, it is your job in many ways to prioritize, 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 and be strategic about what you can actually do. You don't want to start 50 projects and not then not be able to finish any of them and not bring them to conclusion. Right now, for example, as we're beginning to really come back in full force post-COVID, one of the things that we're all dealing with is we're coming into this new academic year with probably more depleted reserves. We've put a lot of energy into the last few years because we've had to pivot a lot. We've had to deal a lot with uncertainty. It's been a very difficult time. And I'm finding that my deans, my faculty senate, our students, that they're all excited about coming back together and they all have a long list of projects that they want to do. And I am constantly telling people, Those are all great ideas because by and large, they are. I love it when I can say no to something because I don't think it's a good idea. Because so often I have to say no to things that are great ideas. And so what I'm really needing to do is tell them, okay, what are your top couple of priorities? And it's not even just a question of money. It really is a question of people time that we have so much energy that we have to put into it. So let's make sure that we prioritize so that we don't, you know, open so many boxes that we can't actually deal with them all. And being Anthony, is there something you would like to add? Well, I think what Dr. Kalsay just said there strikes a nerve because people are, they're our number one asset in any, in any large organization, but especially a learning organization such as a college or university. And right now our people are very tired. They're very exhausted after more than two years of very stressful and in some ways for many people personally costly pandemic years. And so I do think prioritization on the part of leaders is going to be key. And to do that in a way that really helps people focus as we re-enter into a somewhat new normal. You know, there's going to be a lot of challenges in the coming years for higher education based on some of the lessons we've learned through the pandemic. I think there's a fair amount of conversation globally happening about 
for example, such things as how should we be delivering the curriculum? Is there an appropriate role for the use of digital technologies as part of the teaching learning function? And if so, how do we do that in a way that's higher quality than perhaps was experienced by some of our students and faculty over the last couple of years. And though these ideas are super exciting on many levels, it's also uh, daunting for many of our students, for many of our faculty to think about the creation of new ways, new modalities, new avenues of delivery. So I think we need to be bold in the coming years. We also need to be gentle with people and make sure that as we continue to flex and bend, that we don't break the very thing that we care about, which is the goodwill of our people, the creativity, uh, and of course, their ability to work hard uh, towards great solutions. Mm. While a president's decision-making process is cumbersome and slow, the business model of higher education is changing really fast. So how does a president combine the need for quick adaptation with sound and discreet judgment? What, what we hear a lot as presidents at times is that universities change at a glacial pace. And what we really showed with COVID is that we can be quick. Just how quickly we pivoted online to be able to make sure that our students could continue learning. But not only in terms of learning, in terms of research. All that basic research that had been taking place over the last 40 or 50 years, our faculties, our researchers, our policymakers were able to take that and very quickly, you know, be able to do everything from create tests that could, that could, you know, tell us whether or not somebody had COVID. They were able to develop vaccines in a record time. We were able to track how COVID was uh, moving across the countries and across the world. We were able to develop treatments for people who had COVID, and we did that at a breakneck pace. And so I think we've really proven just how incredibly quickly um, universities can come together and act when the stakes are high. But I also think it's important to be clear that sometimes you can get things done. I mean, I say this all the time. You can get things done more quickly by moving slow. In other words, I think that sometimes why universities are accused of being slow is that, you know, we do have things like shared governance and it's important to be consultative. And, you know, it is very rare that I would make a decision in my office with three people around me. You know, I would talk to faculty senate, I would talk to my student leaders, I would address the staff organization. And so that may seem like it is being slower. And it's true that the decision might take a little bit longer, but by the time it goes to implementing, I have buy-in. That doesn't happen when you just do quick at the executive level. And so I think it's worked relatively well for us. And, you know, some of what I talk about, the way that I, that I talk about it to the public a lot, is that universities have to balance between that which is timeless and that which is timely. And there are aspects of the university that, you know, people might say it's never changed in that, for example, that relationship between mentor and mentee, the personal aspects of teaching, 
they've been there since Socrates, that, that it's not a bad thing that there are parts of us that we still wear robes from the Middle Ages and that connect us to that larger timeless community. But absolutely, we have to be able to be timely and to work quickly. And I think during the pandemic, we proved that we could. Could you talk a little bit more about shared governance, what it is and how this is a tool used for resolving perhaps intractable problems? Well, you know, in my view, shared governance is perhaps one of the hallmarks of higher education and perhaps something that other sectors can actually learn from higher education. But the notion that the faculty, the administration, and perhaps even other constituents within a college or university, such as staff and students, can come together to have conversations about the collective interests of the institution and, and when appropriate, engage in actually collective decision-making. As Dr. Kalsay has said, it, it causes colleges and universities perhaps to be a little bit slower at times, or at least feel slower. But as it really is the whole idea that everybody's collective interest is being at least aired, discussed, in interest of making the best decisions for the institution. There are certain things that the faculty of a college or university have responsibility for. Curricular decisions, for example, are something that are best left to the wisdom of faculty within the respective fields and disciplines. And it would be shall we say, really challenging and perhaps inappropriate for any single administrator to make curricular decisions on behalf of a college or university. So there's a whole host of reasons why shared governance, when in a robust way, although it could be challenging and perhaps it could slow things down a little bit, I think it's perhaps one of the reasons why higher education has remained so vital globally, where there are instances of shared governance. I, I will tell you not to sound uh, nationalistic here, but I think something that's particularly true about American model of higher education is the fact that shared governance, as I said earlier, a hallmark. And I, I, as I travel around the globe, I see that many other nations that are developing systems of higher education they're very curious about how this whole shared governance thing works and whether it might work in some fashion within their cultural contexts. Yeah, I am conscientious of the time that we have with each other. So here's my last question. Can a president rise above the fray of ideology? If so, what are some of its guiding principles? How I would reinterpret the question, because I think that ideology is part of what universities are about. And we do have ideals that we can and should trumpet, so to speak. The ideals, I mean, you know, if you're a private, a public university, you know, the public good, the idea of making sure that education is accessible to everybody, you know, that there are ideals that, you know, you don't want to rise above that are core, that are what I call core values. You know, I think the real goal right now in terms of how I would understand your question is that you know, we are in very polarized times and we have people that have very strong conflicting opinions and they are, if it's our students, we want to be able to serve students who hold a broad range of, of, of opinions. We want to make sure that our faculty feels comfortable holding a broad range of opinions that aren't necessarily exclusively related to what happens in the classroom. And we want to make sure that, you know, we can remain a university where there can be robust discussion and robust disagreement about issues that are contentious in society. 
And I think that it, that it really is important for us. We've entered an age where too often we view someone that disagrees with us in terms of a social issue or something ideological as an enemy to be vanquished. I think instead what we want to do is train our students in really looking at people who disagree with you in most cases as being allies to be won over and that you can do that with facts. How do you argue with facts and have different kinds of opinions? One of the things that we did at the University of Washington through our alumni association is um, because of some of the polarization that we were seeing in this country and in our city um, between Democrats and Republicans, we did a series of conversations where we talked about how red, which is the color that's used to represent Republicans, and blue, which is the color that's used to represent Democrats. We had conversations about how blue and red make husky purple. And we brought together leaders from the Democratic and, you know, and Republican Party to come and talk on campus. And we, what we were trying to do is model to our students that you can rise above ideology, particularly by focusing on facts, by looking at data based, by making your decisions based on data, and by being able to talk in a way that was not confrontative, but that actually tried to look for commonalities. Dean Anthony, is there something else that you would like to add and perhaps give the last word? Well, I think what makes a college or university such a special place, potentially such a special place, is that it is truly a marketplace for the free exchange of ideas. And as Dr. Calce has said, that that can be a tricky enterprise to engage because sometimes things will be said or ideas will be shared. And maybe the core of the idea is difficult or the manner in which it was delivered is perhaps distasteful. Nonetheless, I think as leaders in colleges, universities, we always have to strive for an ideal of creating a space where the free and unfettered exchange of ideas can occur. Certainly, we can have expectations of decorum, expectations of principles of good communication, but it really, really is a challenge, but when executed well, I think a college or university in its purest form can perhaps be that one place left in our society where ideas can be debated uh, vigorously in a healthy manner and hopefully to bigger, broader, deeper understanding across perceived divides. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview.